And we suffice to say we don't do this with every dedication, but it, it was such a journey for these guys. We thought you really ought to hear the story of faith that underlies this. Um, so I guess what we'll do, I mean, we, I did text some questions over, uh, and I'll promise I'll try and stay to script, but I might slip a few little cheeky ones in and see what happens. So um, do you want to give us a rundown between you of um, the pregnancy, what was involved, um, the story, really? Sorry, I've written some notes just in case uh, I forget anything or if I am start rambling. Um, okay, so uh, we fell pregnant, uh, massively overjoyed, you know, as you are. Um, we, had, uh, we decided to go for a, an early scan. Um, in fact, the scan took place whilst I was actually away. Uh, I rang Bex, How's, how did the scan go? Yeah, everything's fine, cool, okay, great. Well, I'll see you in like three hours. I was in Huntingdon. Uh, so I got back here and uh, Bex showed me the scan picture. It's like, well, here's a scan picture. Do you see anything? Like, it's a scan picture. Never see anything. Um, just like, yeah. It's like, do you notice anything? What you told me, everything was okay. What's what's up? Uh, there's two. Two. I mean, I know it's confusing in there. Maybe they got lost, counted the same one twice. Um, and then, of course, you start thinking, two. So we've already got one. He's he's gone out. Uh, so. Right, well, it's, we're not going to fit in our car. We're never going to be able to afford to go on holiday. <laughs> and, then, and then you're just like, two. Lord, why two? Why not, why not one? Um, and then it progresses. We had a 12-week scan, as everyone does, and that was great. A 20-week scan. So we decided that the, the outcome that we would prefer would be two little boys. So the worst that could happen on this day would be two little girls. That worked well. Um, and you go in and you see the sonographer, and the sonographer just goes, looks at the screen, and then says, would you mind just stepping into a side room? And at that point, your world falls apart. You're sat in there, you don't know what's happening, you're in a, just a, medical room, talking about what could be wrong, what are we going to hear. And then the consultant pops in, and, uh, and because of the wonderful way the NHS is, they have to make sure they tell you the worst possible outcome, which of course is all you ever retain following any meeting with any kind of doctor. Um, and that was the, the identical twins, which means they share all but one sack, so there's like three extra sacks and stuff. Anyway which means that, in effect, one baby could steal all of the ambiotic fluid from another baby. Uh, and therefore meaning that one baby could be born much, much smaller without things like stomachs and bladders and all sorts of stuff and is non-viable. Okay, so the doctor comes in and goes, uh, there is a chance that you'll have to choose between the girls and in effect sacrifice Eden for Eliana which of course put us into a proper tailspin, the world fell apart. And actually Chesterfield also said that we wouldn't be under Chesterfield anymore, we'd go to Sheffield. So, it's like I got like an hour off work, so I'm like, well, what, what quite do I do now? You know, are we gonna hear about this appointment for Sheffield in three weeks time or tomorrow or whatever? So I went back to, did I go back to work? I think I went back to work. 
Anyway, got a phone call about an hour later saying that they had an appointment in about half an hour's time. So, caned it home from work, picked up Bex, charged over to the Sheffield. And basically, this was then the story for, this was at 20 weeks. So, this was then the story for the next 11 weeks. And the story was, every Tuesday night, we would be filled full of dread. Because every Wednesday, the doctor would then decide whether or not we had to kill Eden for Eliana. And into that, we then, they do lots more tests, they do lots of stuff with sonography, whatever the appropriate term is. Uh, lots, of, lots of very exciting stuff, technology's amazing. Um, and they started to see that Eliana's heart had uh, a leaky heart valve, and that Eden's heart uh, had uh, some extra, uh, I, think it's, I think it's oxygenated blood in the deoxygenated side of the heart, meaning that there's a short circuit somewhere. That's a fistula that she still has. Uh, and basically, so every week we would go to Sheffield and find out whether or not the term is imminent demise. Oh, it's slipped. I'm not good with head stuff. Um, and then Bex, uh, so yeah. Uh, Eliana was under Leeds Hospital as a referral from Sheffield. Uh, and then at 31 weeks, Bex went into labor. So we went straight to Sheffield. They then did everything in their power to stop the labor, which worked at 32 weeks while still being in hospital. We had another scan and the doctors decided that Eden had put on no weight and Eliana had put on two pounds, meaning that Eden was at two pounds in weight and Eliana was at five pounds in weight and that there's obviously an issue, that baby is struggling and therefore birth needs to happen. Uh, you know, this was just after Christmas um, and for ages we were thinking that we would never get to Christmas. Um, so yeah, that's, then they were born. We didn't hear them cry, uh, we didn't see them. They were a, caesare a caesarean, they were whisked away into various um, incubators on breathing apparatuses, I don't know if you've seen the pictures, on breathing apparatuses you've seen, um, and that's where they stayed for the next sort of six weeks, and then they came out of incubators into cots, and then eventually we were allowed to take our children out of hospital. That's a bit of a journey, isn't it? Imagine being faced with those sort of choices. I mean, that's almost an inconceivable horror, isn't it? Being asked to potentially choose between uh, a twin, so. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple of other questions in this, but I'd love to hear just a little bit from your perspective about the pregnancy as well, what that was like, having a scan and being told that news as a mum. What, what, how, how did that hit you? Tell me to, tell me to take uh, Eden. Hey. Check hey. me out. Um, yeah, it was just really scary, really horrible the whole time. Um, we had a tough pregnancy with Ezra anyway. On top of it, I had cholestasis, which meant my skin was just on fire since 13 weeks to 32. Um, so that added to the uh, challenges. So, yeah. And um, sounds like a, almost a trite question, but, but what was the absolute lowest point for you guys? Uh, yeah, for me, the lowest point was uh, that moment when the sonographer uh, is out of their depth or doesn't have the training to deal with people and then someone's you know says just wait here a minute and we'll get someone else and go sit in this room 
and it's and then the specialist comes in and says exactly what you do not want to hear. That's the lowest point for me. Um, the lowest point for me was um, the birth because um, after the heartache of the pregnancy, um, they then whisked them away and took them into my room and I didn't even know if they were alive. I didn't hear them cry. Um, and then being taken up to recovery and hearing everybody else's babies crying and, um, and yeah, not even hearing ours or seeing ours at that point, which felt like hours after. I'm sure it was only like half an hour, but <laughs> it felt like a long time. And um, so that's, you know, all the trauma, the pain of the journey, living with horrific uncertainty on Tuesday nights, all of that stuff. Hard for many of us to understand, but um, there are obviously going to be high points. Uh, you know, and I actually said when I sent a text, a high point other than a birth, but <laughs> it's actually, that was not a, actually, interestingly, a great moment. So what, have, what was the high point during this process or have been the high points? Um, well, there's, there's several high points. Um, you know, uh, so I would send out a, a, a prayer request to lots of you guys here, um, saying where we were up to. I'm losing this one. There we go, effortless. Right. Um, so, um, am I saying the wrong bit? Am I saying your bit? Oh, am I? Uh, oh, hang on. In fact, there's there's more questions. Apologies, apologies. Uh, yeah. So um, the high point, the highest point thus far, is that um, having been born and watching them grow and become really quite polar opposite characters, um, is the fact that Eliana, who had her heart issue all the way through pregnancy, that heart issue has completely disappeared since she's been uh, discharged from the cardio baby people department, whatever the appropriate term is. Um, so yeah, she's, she's completely fine now, apart from being small and potentially looking super cute. Look at the face. It's a high point for you. Uh, for mine was uh, double cuddles. Um, for a while they were in different rooms. When we did get to see them, when they were in the same room, I could then hold them at the same time. It was really hard because they were on loads of wires and apparatus, but that was the highest point for me, holding them for the first time together. Brilliant. And um, final question. What got you through? What got you through this to this point now? Like emotionally, spiritually, uh, as, a, as a marriage, what got you through? Um, so we have... Oh, I'm making this look great. There we go. No, no it's all right over there. We're there. Um, so as a relationship, we've been through highs and lows. There's stuff that we've dealt with uh, in private. Um, but this... What's helped us get through this, what's helped me get through this, is doing this openly, doing this with you guys, um, sending out prayer requests to you guys, just sort of no, no additional bump, just this is where we are, this is what's happening, please pray. So it's the prayer and support of all of you guys has, has helped us get through this. Um, yeah, similar, the support of others. Um, there's a really good friend who's here who um, sent um, worship songs and scriptures most days during the pregnancy, and that was just amazing. Just to, when you were feeling low, you just opened your text messages, and just to see that was just amazing. Um, 
Oh yeah, and uh, we spent eight weeks in neonatal, and so getting text messages to check we're okay and getting visitors was just great because it was just really such a lonely time being in there. And I said last question, but I just thought one more. Is that right? <laughs> um, a lot of people when we talk about faith, they, they you know faith in Christ, faith in God. You know, some people can say, well, that's just you know you need a crutch, or is it a magic bullet just to fix stuff? But here you've got two people following Jesus and then trauma follows and you know what 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 journey did you go on in terms of faith where God is how did it help what what questions arose what's the reality of that I guess is what I'm saying um so yeah you know we've been we've both been Christians for quite a while um we've both been part of churches on and off our entire lives um and our faith, when, you go, when, when this dawns on you and this hits you, and every week you go through the same uh, emotional roller coaster, um, it's very hard to, to not ask why. But, you know, we just found that our faith uh, and God's provision and the support of others and just our own personal relationships with God have grown and developed through this and that he has provided and he has answered prayer and um, you know we've got two miracles here and you know we have had low points we have had points where we've felt that you know we've been beseeching the Lord and nothing has been happening and then things happen and you're just like wow you know it was like every week Please, Lord, help us get through Tuesday. Uh, help us get through Wednesday, uh, and then it was let's get to 28 weeks because at 28 weeks they stand a much better chance of actually coming out of neonatal. And then it's like, right, well, you know, 32, 32 is a good, 32 is a good number. What about 34? Specialist starts talking about 34, 36. You're just like, oh. and it's just like it's all the Lord. So I don't know if that answers your question, but let's give him a round of applause, shall we? It's brilliant. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much. We just thought, I said we don't, don't normally do that, but it was such a journey. And, um, and the way these guys reached out in prayer was uh, really moving, uh, the honesty of the journey. And, uh, you know, it does throw up all kinds of questions. When you're a person of faith and things aren't working out, it, it does throw up all kinds of questions for people. So we just thought it'd be really good to explore that. And, um, I think I said to I think I said to you both before uh, when I was watching the way you were sending out text messages and reaching out for prayer. I just found that profoundly moving. And uh, prayer isn't doesn't you don't always get the answers you want. And faith is a roller coaster ride. But one of the things I've found certainly since the age of 18 when I gave my life to Christ is that there becomes a rock, a foundation in your life that even though life can throw all kinds of stuff at you, is actually immovable. And even when you go through really tough times, there's this thing that Christians discover that just keeps welling up inside, which is faith and trust in Christ. And um, uh, for me, uh, we, we, just to say to you, we're normally going to do a little series at the moment on Heroes in the Faith, but I decided to depart from that today and just share a little bit around this. Um, for me, it was, it was at age 18, and I'd never been to a church, really, before that. The only time I'd actually been to a church up until the age 18 was to actually perform ladies and gentlemen, in a barn dance, in the local Methodist chapel. 
I've never actually revealed that publicly before. But I, I was a little bit adept at the dozy do. So I was putting a school barn dance team. There was a school barn dance squad. So apart from that, I'd never been to a church. And as many of you all know, uh, you've heard me say this before, but the only Bible I'd ever had was the Gideon's Bible, the little red plastic one that they give out of school. I don't know if they, they still do that. They still do that. Um, anyone in here, a Gideon, who hands out Bibles? I mean, it's a fantastic work. You've done it once. Okay, it's fantastic work. So you go into school at age, like year seven, it used to be called first year, back in old money, and they would give you the uh, little Bible, which I discovered was made out of Rizzler, so I smoked it. So that was the uh, first Bible I ever had, actually. And the last one until I was 18, and then um, uh, I went to church because I uh, challenged a mate of mine who I found out was a Christian. It's a long story I won't go into now. Uh, but on my first ever day in church, and this might be true for one of you here, I don't know. This might be your first time in a church like this, but I walked into the back of a church like this with a couple hundred people in it, and along the back row were some very good-looking girls. And I'm like, hello, I didn't know this happened in church. Uh, it's not my, my vision of what happened in church, and they were good-looking go- girls who were, uh, you know, splendidly presented <laughs> on the back row. And there's one there that completely caught my eye. I thought, well, she's, she's fine. And so I actually asked her out, I think within a week or two, actually, and said, oh, I think I'd be really good for you. Do you want to go out? Uh, to which she said, no. Uh, <laughs> I said, uh, I only go out with Christians. I said, well, I, I totally am one. She said, no, you're not. And I went, I am. She said, I go out with born-again Christians. I'm definitely that. I said, born-again? I thought, that's Cliff Richard. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I thought, I'm definitely that. And uh, she uh, said, no, I mean, I go out with people who have met Jesus. And I went, I'm definitely sure I met him once. I'm thinking, was it in Dagenham or Watford or somewhere? But I definitely met him somewhere. She said no. Anyway, um, long story short, a guy was preaching called Robert Scott, who was an ex-paratrooper who had become a Methodist minister, and he preached the message of Jesus Christ. And within a couple of months, I was standing up on my feet, giving my life to Christ, and, uh, and crying my eyes out at the, just the deep sense of love that God had for me. And um, I, you've heard me say this before, those of you who have been here regularly, but I remember standing out at the front of the church, 22nd of April, 1990, 7 o'clock in the evening. I can remember the moment. And I stood outside the front, and I looked at this old dying bush on the other side of the road and cried my eyes out because it was green, seeing leaves for the first time. My mate standing next to me going, why are you crying? And I'm going, they're green leaves. The leaves are green. <laughs> He's going, what the heck? And I'm going, no, they're green. They're totally green. And uh, it was because the veil had come off my eyes. And I've seen the world that God had made for the first time. But the real punchline is, is that the girl I fancied gave me my second ever Bible that night and wrote a little message in it for me and gave me a kiss. I thought I should have done this six months ago. That's right, it's really good. And, uh, and she ended up being my wife. So that is how I met Karen. And um, I've actually still got that Bible on my shelf in my study. This is a more recent one. But the first Bible I have is quite battered as an old Bible should be, if it's well read. And in the back of my Bible is a little message from Karen, which says, I love you, Carl, and I always will. Which is a brilliant device to use if you're in a lot of trouble. (laughs) You wrote that once. You must always love me. So that's what happened for me, and I didn't uh, join the army as I planned, and... uh, follow Christ wholeheartedly, ups and downs along the way. But I've discovered some things, and they're just several very brief things I want to share with you this morning that uh, I think have come across, in as Dan and Rebecca have shared, and uh, I think have meant something to me, three lessons that I've learned. 
Um, along the journey of following Jesus, uh, it may extend to four, uh, but I'll try and keep it to three. But the first one is, the followers of Jesus have a hope that is very hard to describe. But it is an overarching, overriding, deep sense of hope. And people put their hope and their trust and their faith in so many different things these days. I mean, like, whether it's, I don't know, like, like the lottery. You know, people put their hope in a lottery, don't they? I mean, people doing it week in, week out. But actually, statistically, if I get this right, I think the likelihood of you winning the national lottery is one in 45 million, which is the same likelihood of being struck by lightning. In fact, the odds are greater. I think it's, to remember my memory right, one in four million chance you're going to be eaten in entirety by a flesh-eating buck. <laughs> so you stand more chance of disappearing thanks to some virus like streptococcus eating you than winning the lottery. Or people put their hope in their pension plans, their retirement plan, you know, or the stock market, or their career, or their exams. I remember when I went to uni, I actually did a degree in building. I actually did a building <laughs> engineering degree. And, um, and my plan was to, to qualify as a building engineer. And then I think mainly because instead of joining the army, I wanted to put on a pair of boots every day and shout at contractors and stomp around outdoors. I think if I'm looking back. Um, but I thought, well, that's a good career. You know, build stuff. And two things happened. One was, in the second year, I managed to score 4% in engineering science. 4%. That's amazing. Eh? Well, I got 4%. I must have spelled my name wrong. So um, that was quite a thing. And I remember phoning Karen, because we were going out by then, saying, um, Oh, I just got uh, past everything else. Quite well, I got a first in everything else. But 4% in engineering science. And I remember feeling like my world had fallen apart because my chosen trajectory had gone completely wrong. Uh, Karen actually uh, cried when I told her. But actually, I found out later it was tears of joy because she was hoping I'd quit uni and come home. <laughs> actually, I resat and passed. And she cried again because I passed and I was staying on because uh, we were living apart at the time. Uh, I was in Coventry. But people put their hope in their qualifications. I put it open in whatever exams they're doing. I know some of you are facing the terror of your A-level results or your GCSE results, but it's a well-known thing. It won't define you what you get. You can't, you know, ultimately putting your hope in your qualifications or your planned career trajectory will not cut it at the end of all things. I, you know, I've seen a lot of people die. I've been a pastor for a while. I've been with people when they are about to breathe their last breath. I've had last conversations with people, with a spiritual person, you know, the, the thing that people want to say before they die, before they talk to their family. I've had those conversations. And I've seen the level playing field that death represents. If you don't have a deep hope that overarches all of this stuff called life and death, then, then I don't know, I think people just bury their heads in the sand and there's a verse in the Bible, in Hebrews actually, Hebrews chapter 2, where it talks about people being enslaved to the fear of death, so they just bury their heads in the sand. But when you know Christ, everything changes. Like everything. Knowing that there is a, a God in heaven, and this isn't a vain thought, like I feel it. 
knowing that there is a God in heaven, a Father in heaven that loves you more than you can conceive. And even when the chips are down and you're backed into a corner, he loves you and he's got you. That actually changes everything. And many of you here know that sensation. You know that feeling. And I reckon in the darkest moments, even when for you guys you're like choosing between what twin, dreading Wednesdays, actually being able to draw in a deep world that there is a Father in heaven who's got you, changes everything, loves you unconditionally. And the truth is that when we die, you breathe your last breath and you wake up and you're, you're actually not facing an abyss or nothingness. But there is a God in heaven who loves you and he's got you and real life is about to start. Knowing that, deep in here, changes absolutely everything. I don't know what you feel about life, but I tell you what, I'm not quite looking forward to the process of drawing my last breath unless I die suddenly. But knowing that there's a hope beyond this life and life for now, which we'll come on to, that changes everything for me. And I've watched followers of Jesus die and I've watched people who don't follow Jesus die and they die differently. They actually do. I watch people die in peace. I actually got told off by someone dying once. I sat next to someone's bed who was dying. Proper Christian warrior, this person. Proper follower of Jesus. Terminally ill. And I held their hand and I said, Is there anything you're worried about? Is there anything you're concerned about in these last moments? And you know what they said to me? Oh, shut up. <laughs> and of course I'm not worried. So be with Jesus now. And I went, oh, okay, let go of the hand. Just sat with him for a bit, feeling ashamed. Knowing Jesus gives us hope. And the Bible says that by his spirit we know that we're God's children. When you give your life to Christ. Romans 8.15, by the Holy Spirit we cry, Dad. I know that God is our Father in heaven. And many of you have experienced that. And I'm looking around the room here. Many of you have experienced the ups and downs. You've experienced loss. You've experienced worries, health worries, career trajectory worries, all that kind of stuff. But I know, looking in your eyes when I talk to you, you know Jesus and it's made a difference. And if you don't know Jesus today, you can have that hope. You just need to decide. You can choose to make a step towards him and it changes everything. The second thing is, he gives us peace that surpasses all understanding. Knowing Christ, he says that in Philippians 4. That those who follow Christ can have the peace that surpasses all understanding. And I remember years ago as a young pastor, I must have been about 30, being called out in an emergency to the snow dome in Birmingham where a young man who was the son of someone in our church had had a terrible accident snowboarding and had smashed his head and um, had then been rushed to hospital in Birmingham. And when I got there, um, everyone's in trauma, cut a long story short. Uh, you have to scrub up, put the mask on and overall and going into intensive care on a chaplaincy pass. And um, he had had two bits of his skull cut out to allow his brain to expand because uh, the bruising was so bad. And, uh, and I spoke to the consultant and they said, uh, this is, uh, I don't know if your tradition, you do the last rites. But, you know, we're talking with the family about withdrawing life support. That is not a good situation to walk into. And um, I went into a little side room that you described. You get taken into this terrible little side room. And in this little bare side room, with nothing in it, with a couple of old chairs, sat the family. 
and they were much older than me at the time. And I walked in and they stood up and collapsed into my arms. I'm 30 years old, I've never navigated anything like this before. And they're holding me and they're sobbing. Because they've just been told they've got to decide whether they're going to withdraw the, the life support or not. And then I end up standing with my hands on the shoulders of this guy, the dad. This is a dad facing loss of his son. The mum is, is literally almost curled up in the corner, cannot even face life at this moment. I'm sure you have moments like that. You're like, God. And this guy, suddenly, it was like the presence of God was in the room. And this guy looked at me. And he wiped his tears. Put his hands on my shoulders. We were standing like this, our hands on each other's shoulders. And he went, I don't know what just happened. But I know the peace that surpasses all understanding. And he bowed his head. And he prayed this prayer that I will never forget. He said, Father, he is your son, not just my son. And I give my boy back to you. I trust you with my boy, whether he lives or dies. I know you've got him. In Jesus' name, amen. And then hugged me and sat down and looked at me and smiled with the peace that surpasses all understanding. And in this particular story, a beautiful thing happened. He started to come round. We visited him for many, many weeks and months. And uh, although he has slight problems uh, with some speech pronunciation, he's now married, working as an engineer. And <laughs> like, unbelievable. But in those moments, he knew a peace that surpassed all understanding. My question is, have you ever known that? Or have you ever had the ability to access that? Because let me tell you something, and I'll do this completely unapologetically, is only the peace of Jesus Christ that can give you that. There is no self-help book, no hypnosis manual, no medication, there is no nothing that will give you the peace that surpasses all understanding apart from the message of Jesus Christ and his spirit living within you. I, I've walked with many people now over a good couple of decades, and I know it. And I know that there are things like sometimes we need counselling, sometimes we need intervention, sometimes we need help, sometimes we need medication, and all of that stuff, but that deep sense that God has got you, and it is going to be okay in the end. That, that only comes through the message of Jesus Christ, I believe. Because the Bible says, the Bible says that when Jesus died on a cross... In case you're not sure what this is all about, when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that he carried all our sorrows, all our sicknesses, all our infirmities, our grief, our pain, was slammed into him on the cross. And then the Bible says that three days later he rose again. A stone of the tomb was rolled away and he rose again. You might look at it and think, what does that mean? What does that even mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means of death and the hell and pain and grief and bereavement and all of that stuff slammed into his body because it causes our choices cause so much pain in our lives. When Jesus rose again, he's saying, all of that is gone. There's this little word that Christians use called sin, which many of you only know now through Weight Watchers. S-Y-N, sin. <laughs> but sin is basically, I will live my life my way and I will stand or fall on my decisions. I know best. Churchill, when he died... So he said as he was dying, he went, someone said, Churchill, Winston, are you ready to meet God? 
And he said, well, I rather hope that God's ready to meet me. <laughs> Arrogance. Actually, that's sin. I do it my way, and it causes us so much pain and problems. When Jesus died, he took it all. All our bad decisions, all the things that get us into mess and pain. When he rose again, he's saying, I dealt with it. And all you need to do is turn to Jesus and decide for him and ask him to help you, even forgive you, and everything begins to change. And third thing, therefore, he gives us life. And very briefly, it's not just about the next life when you follow Jesus. It's about life to the full now. Jesus said in John 6.35, he said, I am the bread of life. You think, what does that mean? What that means is, you may try to scratch the itch or find fulfillment from so many different things, but ultimately only Jesus satisfies. The Bible says that when you receive Christ, you will never hunger or thirst spiritually again. And there will be, I guarantee you, people sitting here today who are searching in all kinds of ways to get ultimate satisfaction, to scratch the itch, to fill the hole. And we all carry it. God has actually left us a little hole in our hearts so that we'd look out for him. It's like our homing beacon. And people are searching. That's God crying out to us. Do you not know I made you? Do you not know I love you? Do you not know I can give you life to the full? That's what's calling out. And we try to fill it up by playing golf or going to the gym or being workaholics or drinking too much vodka or Sauvignon Blanc or taking drugs or whatever it is. But you'll never do it. You'll never scratch the itch. Jesus said, no, no, listen to me. I'm the bread of life. You give your life to me, decide for me, you will be ultimately satisfied in a way that I can't even begin to describe to you. And I said I'd do three, maybe four, but the final thing is simply this. I do want to say this to you. Actually, when we decide for Jesus, we know that we have a destiny too. And it's so poignant that when we look at a day like today, with little Eden and Eliana being dedicated. Because here's a little cheeky philosophical thought for you. All that love and all the care that they'll put into Eden and Eliana, Dan and Rebecca and Ezra. And I think about my daughters. All the prayer, the heartache, the energy, the love, the, the, you know, all the photographs you take. What's all that about? What is that actually all about? If one day you are going to die, Eden and Eliana are actually going to die one day, then what's been the point? If all they are is a faded photograph in a box or an old collection of photos on a USB. I don't even know my great-granddad's name. There'll be loads of you who don't know who your relatives are, going back generations, because we forget. Like, particularly if you're really working class. Like, my family come from Watford and Dagenham, so, like, we haven't got a clue who people are. I'm always in awe of posh people who have got, like, centuries of photos. Oh, there's uh, King Albert, you know, 200 years ago, Johnny Good, yeah. Owned own Scotland, you know. I'm like, wow, how do you even know that? I think there was a bloke called Jeff, you know. <laughs> like maybe 50 years ago or something. But I don't know my family. Is that it? Is that all that life is? All that emotion, all that energy, and then it's gone? Or 
Is there a God in heaven who loves us? Is there a Father in heaven who knows every day of their life? The Word of God says it. The Bible says it. He knows every hair on their head, every word before they speak it, everything about them. He knows every day ordained for them. And then one day, he will lead them, the Bible says, in a way everlasting, and they will be in eternity with their Father in heaven. Is that what life is? Life to the full now, and I hope for eternity. And I have to say that there's only one way you're going to get there, and that's through Jesus Christ. It's life, it's death, and resurrection, and that's why we're here. And that's what we celebrate. And my prayer as we finish this, uh, for this church, actually, and many of you, is that one day, when we do finally peg it, and we die, and we breathe our last breath, and we open our eyes, and we move Jesus, we'll look around, there'll be a whole bunch of us there, because we all know the Lord. There'll be Eden and Eliana and Dan and Rebecca and you guys, and friends and family, and there'll be a part in a celebration in heaven. And real life would have just begun. It will be like everybody waking up from a dream. You know when you wake up from a dream and the dream seems so vivid, but then you can't quite remember it? Like, what were the details? You ever had that? Like, I know this thing. I, what, you know, who was I married to? I'm sure it was my wife. You know, I can't remember the details. I've had that dream before. I got married, I had kids, and I, and I woke up and I couldn't remember it. And I'm awake next to Karen. I'm like, that's so weird. I had this really intense dream. I'm sure Emily and Annie were in it and Karen, but I couldn't even remember their faces in it because it was a dream. And I felt the Holy Spirit whispered to me. And the Holy Spirit said to me, one day, son, this will be what it's like. You will wake up from a dream. This life, this life now is not real life. Real life is yet to come in all its fullness. Full HD, Technicolor, for eternity. We will wake up one day from a dream and all the ups and downs, the joys, the pains, the hurts, the triumphs, the successes, the, the losses, the defeats, it will all be like a fading dream because you'll be with Jesus and you'll be truly alive if you choose for him and decide for him. So I guess my word to you would be if you find an alpha course near you and we run them here or you live miles away from here and you're not sure what I'm talking about, get into a local church, find something called the alpha course, read about it. Because if I'm right, if even there's a 1% chance I'm right and this has eternal consequences and consequences for life now, it's got to be worth looking into, right? And if it's not and I'm wrong, well, happy days. At least I tried to live a good life. That's true, isn't it? So if it's, if it's potentially true, it's worth looking into. Let's pray.